John 21, 15 through 23. Uh, if you're in the Pew Bible, that is uh, page 1078, and the heading says, Jesus and Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, and the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that the disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the gospel of our Lord. It is a truism that people everywhere are very uh, easily... Um, I'm sorry, what's going on over here? Is there a... We good? Sorry. Um, distracted. Easily distracted. <laughs> you know, and Barb's like, what did I do? Uh, we all are. And, and you know, I, I have heard over and over again people try and uh, kind of flippantly say about someone, this person has the attention span of a goldfish. And I'm sure that all of you heard a few years ago that a study came out that found that the average goldfish could actually focus on something and follow something for eight seconds, and that the average human now could only focus for seven seconds, meaning all of us have a shorter attention span than a goldfish. It was part of a study trying to show how we're frying our brains with digital devices, but that's a topic for another time. Uh, I certainly experience this on a daily basis and say, oh, I wish I could focus more and get distracted less. I would get so much more done. Today I was preparing uh, an audio file of last week's uh, message to upload onto our website. I try to keep up on that. Uh, and I said, oh, I need to know what number this is in the Ephesians sermon series because I put the number in the file. So I went over to the website, Judson uh, website, churchlansing.com, and before I could do that, it came up with like the homepage and it said, Rush Limbaugh dead at 70. And I went, whoa, Rush Limbaugh died. And that reminded me that yesterday, Carmen died. Carmen was a Christian singer from the 90s and the 80s that I really liked. And that made me sad. And that made me think, I'd like to hear some Carmen. So I said, Alexa, play songs by Carmen. And then I thought, yeah, that guy made so many albums and he won a bunch of, how many Dove Awards did he win? So I went to Wikipedia to see how many Dove Awards he won. And like seven or eight minutes later, I said, what am I doing? Closed everything, closed it all off. Alexa, stop. All right, 
And then I realized I still didn't know what number sermon that was, and I had to open the whole thing up again. I know that I'm not the only one. Well, Peter apparently was the same long before any kind of digital devices were shortening our attention span. He's in the middle of one of the most profound, amazing, heartbreaking, hope-giving moments of his life. Face-to-face with Jesus, post-resurrection Jesus. I have stood in that spot where this happened. We're quite sure there's a beautiful church there, but small. The whole thing is just uh, powerful and beautiful. And I stood there and I thought, oh my goodness, this is the best place in the world to be. I can see this happening. And this happens so frequently with me that I I turn away from Jesus and he welcomes me back and reaffirms that that I'm his son and, and I can still be his servant. And I kind of refused to leave for a while. Like it was a tour bus with the official driver and... 40 other people, and I was like, 10 more minutes. And they were like, oh, all right. Now, I wouldn't have done that if I would have realized something else that was going to happen vis-a-vis the bus later, but I'm getting ahead of myself. It was a wonderful place to be and to think that this is where Jesus says to Peter, who's three times denied him, I still love you. I still want you, okay? I still trust you. I still invite you to follow me. I'm still going to use you to build my church. And then he tells him, yes, you're, you're down on yourself because you've denied me and, and you've, you've failed the test, but let me tell you something about your future. You are going to, in old age, still be faithful to me and be faithful to the end to the point of being a martyr for the faith. And Peter is hearing this. I have to imagine he's moved to tears. And in the midst of it, he goes, Oh, right. What about him? He gets, he gets distracted in this moment. And he says, what about, what about this guy? What's going to happen to him? I want, we did your thing. Let's do my thing now. Tell me, tell me about John. Is he also going to be a martyr? Because uh, it's not fair if he's not. To which Jesus replies, literally, what's it to you? That is a very wooden translation of the Greek. That's not a, a thought-for-thought paraphrase. Tiprasse. What? toward you. What, what is this to you? Why do you care? You follow me. In fact, there's kind of a follow me sandwich. After he tells him, this is what you're going to do when you're old, he says, all right, follow me. Oh, what about this guy? What about this other? Why do you care about that? If I want him to live until I return in, my, in glory, what's that to you? You follow me. So quickly distracted. And he's like, come on, focus. We've got a lot to do. And by the way, this has happened before to Peter. On another of the most amazing, life-changing moments of his life, he took his eyes off Jesus. Do you remember this? When they were in the boat and Jesus came walking on the water and Peter had all the faith to say, if it really is you, call me to come to you. And Jesus says, come on. And he gets out of the boat and he's walking toward Jesus on the water. Yes, we really believe this happened. If we didn't, we wouldn't be Christians. He's walking toward Jesus and then he looks at the waves and begins to sink. Actually, that's how we frame it usually, that he's looking up and then he looks down and he begins to sink. But it says in the text that he saw the wind, whatever that means. It means either he, maybe he saw the, the effect the wind was having on the waves, or maybe he saw the, the blowing clothes, or maybe he looked back at the boat. Whatever the case, he, he took his eyes off of Jesus looking away. This seems to be sort of his MO and looking somewhere else, he began to sink. And in this moment where, where Peter is he's, he's being restored, he's being encouraged, he's being commissioned and called, and he gets distracted, I want to grab him and shake him, especially because he reminds me so much of myself, 
And I want to say, Peter, you're going to miss it. You're being restated, which is what you've completely been longing for and weeping for bitterly since you turned away and walked away from him. Of course, I mean, he didn't actually walk away from him. Jesus and Peter are together in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then Peter's not too far behind for the rest of this story. So Peter did not stop following Jesus. Let me read from Mark 14, 54. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So even after the whole thing where he messed up and did the wrong thing and then ran away with everyone else, he kept on following following, but when he followed at a distance, his faithfulness began to flag. He goes from being, yeah, you can have Jesus over my dead body and also some of your dead bodies, and oh, I hope you weren't too attached to that ear because it's not attached to you anymore. Bring it on to, no, you have the wrong guy. I I don't know him. I've never heard of him. He goes from being a lion to being a, a whimpering puppy. The further he gets away from Jesus, the more he's trailing behind him. We read about that heartbreaking moment in the courtyard where their eyes meet, but even that is at a distance. Luke 22, we read, just as he was speaking, he's telling the the girl, I don't know who he is, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. So yeah, Peter never burns any bridges, never tells the other disciples, I'm done with this, I'm going to go back to my old life, I'm finished with this Jesus stuff. He stays with them on Friday and Saturday and Sunday morning. I'm just burning right through Lent and Holy Week for that matter. And then on Sunday morning when Mary comes running in and tells them it looks like he may have risen from the dead, Peter runs all the way to the tomb hoping to find Jesus, but he's not there. Again, he's missed Jesus by maybe half an hour, an hour. He's following him at a distance. He's trailing behind. He was just here. You just missed him. But now in our text today, in John 20, Jesus is right there with him. And he has the connection finally. He, he finally hears the words he wants to hear. He gets the chance, after three times denying him, to three times reaffirm, yes, I love you, yes, you know that I love you. And then he gets distracted. He's distracted over other concerns, getting what he has coming, getting his fair share, making sure that no one else gets it better than him. I remember thinking about this text the day of my seminary graduation. I remember thinking if I was preaching today, I'd preach on this text. What if Jesus could be here and line us all up and tell us all what our ministries are going to look like? How would we respond? I know that we would have this same mindset, right? If you told one person, you know, you're going to pastor two churches, six years apiece, and then you're going to leave ministry and go and lead a, a nonprofit and be incredibly happy. And then the next guy, you are going to go into a rural ministry and struggle for 46 years to keep a tiny church afloat. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult, but it's going to be sometimes rewarding. And then the next guy comes up. We would all be saying, Oh, yeah, what about him? What did they say about him? What about him? I'm a better preacher than that guy. We were in the same homiletics class. He better not have it better than me. To which Jesus would say, what's it to you? Follow me. And we, we all play these games all the time, right? Where we're looking everywhere but Christ. Oh, the scriptures say that's a sin, and you tell me that it's clear that that's a sin. But so-and-so claims to be a Christian and seems pretty sincere and pretty happy, and they do this all the time. So... 
What does that matter to you? Follow me, Jesus says. Or about those who seem to be doing better in their lives, although they've only been following Jesus a short time, or those who have been Christians a very short time and seem to even have a closer walk with him, and we think, well, it's not fair. What, how, does that, how does that make sense? Reminds me of uh, the parable that Jesus told about in the first hour when he went out and he hired people, the, the master of the vineyard, to work in the vineyard. He said, I'll pay you one denarius, fair day's pay for a fair day's work, and then in the, the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, even the eleventh hour, right before the day was going to end, he kept going back to the village square and saying, listen, I need more workers, I'll pay one denarius if you work the rest of the day. And then when they got paid, the people who'd been there all day said, I think we're going to get a bonus. And they just got the one denarius that they'd agreed upon. And they got angry. They said, these guys just got here. And the master of the vineyard essentially said, and I am paraphrasing here, what's it to you? I made an agreement with you. And one with, don't worry about them. The point is this. There will always be things in life that will slow us down in our spiritual walk and cause us to follow it too great a distance. If we were pirates, living by the pirate's code, We'd fall behind, we'd be left behind. Thankfully, we follow the Lord Jesus, who leaves no one behind. And when we first start focusing on our own success and our own worries, which is what Jesus calls the thorns of life in the parable of the soils, and we fall back and trail far behind him, it's hard to catch up sometimes. And if we become preoccupied with frivolous things, that eat up our time and our attention so there's nothing left for the kingdom. We fall back and follow at a great distance and sometimes greater and greater and greater a distance. It's easier and easier to say, I'll catch up later. I'll catch up later. I got plenty of time. And you know, it might even be something good that causes us to fall behind. It might even be something laudable that causes us to say, Jesus, you know what? I'm busy with this. Go on. I'll meet up with you later. So here's what happened with the bus in Israel. We went to the Holocaust Museum, which is one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. It, it's, I think it's better than ours, which makes sense. It's in Israel, it's beautiful, and it ends uh, with these huge floor-to-ceiling windows looking out at like, the glory that is Israel now. Like It's very hopeful. It goes through the darkness and then it has the light. And we had a certain amount of time there, and we had to be back on the bus at a certain amount of time, so we were going somewhere else. And I got really wrapped up in this one little room that had all these people's stories. And I was in there, and I'm like, uh, I just started to think I should check the time because it's probably getting pretty close. And my buddy Cody comes in and said, there you are. We've been looking for you for almost an hour. I said, what? And I pulled up my phone. Oh, yeah. There's nothing more humiliating as a 40-year-old man than getting on a bus where 50 people are like, They've been, they've been waiting. Everything's been waiting for me. Now, was it, it was a good thing for me to care about this and learn about this and be moved by this and, and, and to, to hear these people's stories, but it caused me to fall behind. I also nearly did it again. We were in En Gedi, which is where David wrote a lot of the Psalms. It's, it's this beautiful place of, of big rocky crags and waterfalls and, you know, all these things. And uh, my friends, Ted and Kristen, whom we've known for more than a dozen years, they were there as well. And they're like, we're going to go swimming in this waterfall. And they were all like lovey. And I was like, I want nothing to do with that. So I kept walking. I thought, I want to go off by myself. I want to find somewhere that looks like this is where David could have written some Psalms. So I'm climbing, I'm looking, and I found an amazing place. 
And then I looked at my watch and I was like, I haven't seen anybody in 45 minutes. And we have to be back on the bus in 15 minutes. And I have no earthly idea where that bus is. <laughs> Somehow I made it. But I could have, again, not by anything bad, simply by becoming distracted, fallen behind. And notice here, it's John, the beloved disciple, who distracts Peter. He's not a bad influence on him. He's not someone he shouldn't be palling around with. After the ascension, these two guys are going to do their best ministry together as a team. At Lent, people give up things that aren't necessarily bad things. In fact, if you say, I'm giving up, you know, getting intoxicated for Lent, you don't understand Lent. Because if you plan to go back to it after Lent, then you are just planning to enjoy sin, and you may as well skip the whole thing. It's not pornography or substance addiction or hatred or greed that turns Peter away from Jesus for that moment. It's his own tendency to follow Jesus 50 feet back like a teenage girl who's embarrassed to be at the mall with her parents. But thankfully, Jesus won't let him do that anymore. And he won't let us either. What's it to you? If I want John to live until I come again, what do you care? You follow me. This is what Lent is about. Jesus calling us to follow him more closely and us, like Peter, responding faithfully. We want to be more like the woman with the issue of blood who says, I need to get as close as possible. I'm at the end of my rope. I need to get, I need to get right up there so that I can touch the hem of his garment. I, I need to be this guy's shadow because we too need to be made clean. He's washed us when we came in faith and he washes us continually when we confess our sins and are forgiven again and again, Peter turned away from Jesus and looked at the wind and the waves and he began to sink. Peter turned back from Jesus to look at John and became distracted. So turning away is the problem, but weirdly enough, turning is also the solution. Sometimes you'll hear things or see signs that people have that say, turn and repent. That is actually redundant. Turn is repent and repent is turn. Actually, there's a few different words that are used for the idea of repent in the Bible. And without asking if you want me to, I'm going to very quickly bring you through them. The oldest one is the Hebrew word nicham. It means like a sigh, to groan. And I've heard it said, I've read it said that this is a onomatopoeic word. Onomatopoeic? Whichever one's right. And that's a word that like ribbit or vroom that sounds like what it is. Nicham, sigh. I've never heard anyone sigh that way, but okay. Maybe in the ancient Near East. You can almost imagine someone being grieved enough where this kind of sound would come out of them, but the idea is to groan, to mourn. When Jacob mourns the death of Joseph, it says he nichamed him. This is the word used when God repents or relents, or when he seems to regret something like I regret, I'm grieved that I made mankind. Remember that? That's nicham. He's groaning with this mourning. Then there's the word shuv, which means to turn or return. I've been putting this down your throat for 15 years. Shuv, repent, turn, turn back, return. This is the word that the prophets use, you know, turn or burn. Not as much a physical turning in the direction of your own life, like turning over a new leaf, but more a radical change in your attitude, your outlook, your heart, in your attitude towards sin, especially a conscious separation from sin. And it's occasionally actually used of God in conjunction with Nacham, like in Exodus 32, 
When he is so angry at his people after the golden calf incident, he says, Moses, back away. I'm just going to burn them all up and we can start over. And he says, turn from your fierce anger, shoot from your fierce anger and relent, Nahem, of this disaster against your people. And God does. The New Testament equivalent of that, especially in the book of Acts, you remember studying through Acts and reading language like this, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Turning to the Lord there means they repent and believe. The turning was in their mind, their heart, their will, their very lives. In the Psalms, we see that only God can really affect this in us. Psalm 85, 4, we, we read, restore us again. That's the word shuv. I'm not going to turn. God, you turn me. Turn us. Turn us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. We see this also in John 20 here, I believe. Jesus says of him, this is who you are and who you will be. And then there's one more word in the New Testament, metanoia, which quite literally means a change of mind. And not just a mental change, but a change of direction as well. It has kind of ripple effects into your life. And this is not a human change of mind. That's what, what Judas had. Judas had a, a human change of mind when he took the 30 pieces and then he saw that it didn't go the way that he wanted. When Jesus was crucified, he felt bad. He said, I, I relent, and he goes back. That's a different Greek word altogether, metamelamai, which is fun to say, metamelamai, but that's not, that's not really repentance. Even though God must be involved, we are commanded to do this. John the Baptist says, metanoiate, you need to be changed of mind and heart. There's not this, this distinction between mind and, and heart in the biblical understanding. It's, it's tied together like it is in reality. The word is used in the New Testament discussion of justification. God alone is the author of justification. And, and, and this word metanoia is used. And of sanctification, where our agency is involved. There also we are to change our mind, be renewed of mind, as we were reading on Sunday morning. This is tied closely to baptism and public profession of faith. And, and literally, if you take metanoia, I mean, it literally means like aftermind. This is living by the aftermind. You've got your BC life before you knew Christ and your after, your after heart, your after mind, your after perspective. Peter often, we saw, was looking back, looking back at the before perspective. Let me go get my sword. And Jesus kept patiently calling him, no, follow me. We've got a new way of seeing things. You're going to get it. You're going to, you're going to be faithful to the end. Jesus said, when you put your hand to the plow, you don't look back. You've got to look forward. The aftermind is the result of repentance and the continued work of repentance. And we all have this same problem Peter had, this tendency to kind of slide back down as we climb. You ever tried to go climb Sleeping Bear Dunes? You're like, two steps, three steps, four steps up, and I'm in the same spot. I know I burned some calories, but it's, it's almost like a treadmill. Well, we, we tend to see that. And it's not just an initial response, this turning and returning, this repentance. We must continually return to him. He calls Peter, who's, who's already believed on him, who's already been the first guy ever to confess who he truly is. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for you don't know this because of man, but God has revealed this to you. He, he's not a new convert. He's someone who has turned away, been distracted, fallen back a ways. And then Jesus said, come on, 
follow me, catch up. Like when you're bringing your little kids in the store shopping and you're in a bit of a hurry and they're like, oh, look at all these sugary cereals. And you go, come on, come on, we got to go. Come with me, stick close with me. If you don't, I'm worried somebody might come and snatch you because you're so cute. We're called to return to Jesus' side. He calls us not to follow at a great distance doing whatever we want. And hey, you know what? I'll I'll catch up to you in heaven. Go ahead. I've got other stuff going on here. He wants us to walk with him like the disciples on the road to Emmaus who walked side by side with him and discussed God's word. And he revealed to them from the very beginning how God had a plan. And that plan involved his death, resurrection, and empowering the church to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what Lent is about. Jesus saying, I love you. Follow me. And we say, yeah, but, but, but what I, what's that to you? Follow me. And it seems here that Peter followed him. It's not long later that after this that we see him in the temple preaching the gospel, now filled with the Holy Spirit, that we see him standing up to the Sanhedrin, being laid open by a whip and then rejoicing, declaring we will not, we will not obey you, we'll obey God rather than man. He's become not only bold and brash and cocky, but faithful and close to his Savior every step along the way. Before we have the imposition of ashes, I want to read for you a prayer of Thomas Watson's that I read this morning I thought was perfect for this day of Ash Wednesday. Searcher of hearts, it is a good day to me when you give me a glimpse of myself. Sin is my greatest evil, but thou art my greatest good. I have cause to loathe myself and not to seek self-honor, for no one desires to commend his own dunghill. My country, family, church fare worse because of my sins. For sinners bring judgment in thinking sins are small or that God is not angry with them. Let me not take other good men as my example and think I am good because I am like them. For all good men are not so good as thou desirest, are not always consistent, Do not always follow holiness. Do not feel eternal good in sore affliction. Show me how to know when a thing is evil, which I think is right and good. How to know when what is lawful comes from an evil principle, such as desire for reputation or wealth by usury. Give me grace to recall my needs, my lack of knowing thy will in Scripture, of wisdom to guide others, of daily repentance, want of which keeps thee at bay, of the spirit of prayer, having words without love, of zeal for thy glory, seeking my own ends, of joy in thee and thy will, of love to others. And let me not lay my pipe too short of the fountain, never touching the eternal spring, never drawing down water from above. Amen.